This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to understand your word as we see your gospel going out and how it applies to us today. And near Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, is everything okay? Sounds a bit echoey. I'd like to begin by asking this question. Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful? Or do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is weak? Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is relevant for today? I remember Pastor Y was telling us uh, or sharing with us this story a little while ago. Maybe he was just sharing with me about how he was in one of the university campuses and he was sitting with a group of students and lecturers at a long table on the bench. And he was sharing them the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lecturer came along and sat down and joined them. I think it was over lunch and not knowing what they were doing. And he sat down and asked them what they were talking about. And one of the other lecturers said to him, he said, Oh, we're talking about Christianity. And this lecturer said very dismissively, Don't waste my time with childish fairy tales. And then he got up and he walked off. But increasingly, that's how many people, modern people, treat the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a postmodern, relativist, individualistic age, and people see the gospel of Jesus Christ just like that, as childish fairy tales. And it has no appeal to many of them. So it causes many Christians to ask the question, is the gospel of Jesus Christ still relevant for today? And I think today's passage deals with that question. Now, over the last few months, we've been looking at the book of Acts, and we've seen the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen Jesus spreading from the beginning in Jerusalem further and further out. So if you look at these maps up here on the slide, I've got many maps. You can see where we've been going graphically in terms of a map. right? So we started out in Jerusalem, right, where the gospel was first preached. Oh, you have to click. Bernard, there's a click things, okay? And then it went bigger to Judea and Samaria, and then went up to Caesarea, where the first Gentiles were reached. Okay, and then next slide. And then later on, we saw that Jerusalem, which was the center of Christianity for the Jews, spread to Antioch in the north, which then became like the capital of Gentile Christianity. Oh, you've got to click again. Okay, and click again. Alright, and then next slide. Oh, okay, next one, next one. We saw that the gospel spread from Israel, in, over there in the Middle East, okay, from Jerusalem to Antioch, and spread all the way up to the north and the west, which were the Roman provinces of Asia, Galatia, and Lycia, and Bithynia, which was where Paul went in his first missionary journey, which is the next slide. Okay, so that was the first missionary journey. Of Paul. Now, if we were in Paul's shoes, the logical thing may be to consolidate the work that we've already achieved because within the first 20 years, you can see that actually the gospel has made a lot of progress all the way from Jerusalem all the way up to the north. 
And that's exactly what Paul and his companions tried to do for the next time that they went up. They tried to evangelize this area, Bithynia, Pontus, and Galatia, and just to consolidate the work and the spread of the gospel which had already advanced to this period and to this um, region. But look what happens in chapter 16, verse 6. Okay, so look at this map. Okay, then you understand what's happening. Oh, no, go back, go back, go back. Go back the map. Okay, look at this map. You see what's happening, right? So Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, which you can see up there, right? So Phrygia and Galatia. You can see out there, Galatia, right? And then they were preaching. They were, they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So they couldn't... Oh, no, don't go yet. Come back, say, say. Okay, so they wanted to preach in Asia, but they couldn't do it because the Spirit of God was stopping them. And then when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. You see that purple thing at the top? But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And then from there at night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so you can go to the next slide now. So you can see that Paul wanted to preach around this region, but then I click again, Bernard, but then God stopped him from preaching in this region, but instead... He sent him a vision about this man, okay, it doesn't look like that in the vision, calling for help on the other side in Europe, okay, across the waters. Now, obviously this was going to be a discomforting thing for Paul. You know, they already built this church, they spent time here, there were people who were in need of the gospel, but God was calling them very clearly through this supernatural vision and these supernatural barriers to go to Europe, what is modern day Europe, in order to bring the gospel to them. And that was because, right from the very beginning, Jesus had said to the disciples that they were to be, okay, the next slide, Bernard, his witnesses all the way from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so, Paul and the apostles were not meant to be like comfortable and just building on the church where it really was in that region in Asia and Galatia. But they were to bring the gospel to Europe. And so to Europe they went, which is the next slide, right? So they took a boat, they went from Troas, they went to Neopolis, and the first city that we read about was the city of Philippi. Now, let's look at Philippi. And you can see here in Philippi, it's a very, uh, this is archaeological things, but it was a very modern very large city for its time. Okay, next slide. You can, if you go to holidays, you can go to all, see all these places. And um, let's read what happens there. So in verse 12, they traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Tyrateria named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. 
And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, we're beginning to see that the gospel is reaching places where there is little or no Jewish influence. So in the past, when Paul had gone on his first missionary journey, he always went to the synagogue. Now, you only need 10 Jewish men in order to form a synagogue. But we come to this rather established city in Philippi and there doesn't seem to be 10 Jewish men or the 10 Jewish men there are too lazy to meet. And so he has to go to find a place where they pray. Now, Philippi was actually a city which was founded by ex-veterans of the Roman army. Right? It's, uh, this is what the Romans did. Uh, if you ever watch, if you ever read the comics of, um, uh, it's not Tintin, but uh, Asterix, right? You know, it's like when the Roman soldiers, when they retire, they can go and be given cities. And, 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 and Philippi is one of those cities where all the Roman soldiers went. And so it was given a special status of being a Roman city, and it was quite rich. It was quite in a fertile area, and it was on a major trade route. And here, when Paul goes to the river, he doesn't find any Jewish men, and he doesn't seem to find any Jewish women, but he finds a God-fearing woman Gentile, which seems to be different from all the other women that he's met, because she is a businesswoman who seems to be quite wealthy. She deals in purple cloth, and in those days, purple cloth was the clothes for royalty and the wealthy, because the dye that you used to make purple cloth was very expensive. So she was almost like a Gucci dealer of her day. And you can see that because she was wealthy. She had her own household. That means that she had slaves or servants. She ran a household, and she had a house which was big enough to welcome Paul and his traveling companions. So it must be a big house. It's not as if, you know, you just have a one-room Airbnb. She had, like, many rooms Airbnb, and she could afford to invite Paul and his traveling companions. And so Paul had shared the gospel of her, and God, it says there, had opened her heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. She was one of the first believers in Europe. But at the same time, as this rich woman, this rich Gucci dealing woman, accepted Jesus Christ, we saw that there were other people within the city who were not acceptable of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in verse 16, a female slave who was a fortune teller because she had a spirit in her, just like in Jesus' time, was following the disciples saying, Look, these men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So she was either a believer, or she became a believer, or the Holy or the Spirit, the evil spirit that was within her, was able to recognize the reality of who they were. But she became very annoying to Paul and his companions. So they cast out the spirit from her. And as a result, her owners, realizing that they are cash cow or their golden goose was now dead, became very angry, right? And they made false accusations against Paul and the disciples, and they had them beaten, stripped, flogged, and put in prison. Now what we see here is very reminiscent of what happened to Jesus. If you remember in Matthew chapter 8, uh, next slide, Jesus went among these 
Gentiles in the region of the Gardenese. And there, he came across uh, these two, men, two demon-possessed men who were living in the tombs. Uh, they were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want of us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Now, some distance from them was a, a large herd of pigs feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they went out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. See, just as the economic consequences of the gospel caused the people in the gardeners, the Gentiles in the region of gardeners, to ask Jesus to go away, so here the economic cost caused these rich Philippians to want to have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they sent them to prison, they beat them up, and they tore off their clothes. Now I think this is an important lesson for us because it shows here that the gospel reaches out to these very, very rich and very wealthy people. And for one set of people like Lydia, they will accept it with joy and gladness because God opens their heart. But for another set of people, they will reject it violently. I remember when I was in theological college, every year we had to do a one-week mission somewhere in, uh, in Australia, right? And one year, my second year, we went to one of the richest suburbs in Sydney to do a mission. It was like the Nassim Road district of uh, Sydney. It had these impossibly luxurious houses, these amazing views of Sydney Harbour. When you go into the house, I remember I went into the, the toilet and I said, wow, this bar of soap, is, is, I've never seen this brand before. I wonder where you get it from, right? so big. And I remember our lecturer was verbalized what we were all thinking, right? We were all intimidated and scared to share the gospel with these really rich people. And the lecturer said, you know, you must remember that these rich people have everything, but they are still sinners and they still face God's judgment and they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They still need the cross. And as we see in this passage, that's exactly what Paul does. He still brings the gospel to Lydia and to these rich people. Some will accept and some will reject and some will become very violent about it. And that's exactly what happened to us when we were in this very wealthy district of Sydney. Some people actually sincerely wanted to find out about Jesus and some people refused to open the door for us at all. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because as we look at this passage, Paul's job was not to convert people. Paul's job was to share the gospel. And if you look very clearly, God was the one who opened Lydia's heart to accept Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day, the lesson for us is our role is to share the gospel. And whether people accept or reject, that's God's business. God will cause some people's hearts to be open. And God will cause some people to reject violently. Now what happens next is one of the stories that we come across on Sunday school often. 
because it is a story of how there was a huge earthquake and Paul and Silas were released. So in verse 26, suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer brought, sorry, the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. Now, why do we read this section? What was the point of this section? Well, without going to the amazing earthquake, I think it's very clear that God would not let the gospel of Jesus be locked up in prison. But I think that the more important lesson is that it was to show that there was no real grounds for imprisoning Paul and Silas in the first place. You see, we must always remember the original context of the book of Acts. You know, when the book of Acts was written, it wasn't written originally to Singaporeans in Singapore, but it was written to people in the first century. And the people in the first century, the Christians in the first century, faced real opposition. The Roman authorities were persecuting Jesus. The Jews hated Christians. Even the Gentile godless, idolaters, even they hated Christians. And many times, the Christians in the first and second century faced very unjust and unfair punishment. And what this passage is trying to show is that it is not unexpected that Christians will face unfair and unjust punishment. They are not criminals, they are actually men and women of integrity. But because of the gospel, they will face unjust punishment. And that's true today. If you think that um, when you open your mouth and preach Jesus, people may not irrationally dislike you, then there's something wrong, right? 
sometimes Christians have this irrational feeling that uh, as a Christian, when you do such great things, people would cheer you and celebrate you, right? I, I think that is one of the false understandings of the prosperity gospel when they say, when people see how successful you are, when people see how blessed you are, how fulfilled you are, they will all flock to you and want to hear about Jesus Christ. Well, that's not really true, you know, because when you speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be times where people unfairly and unjustly attack you. They won't cheer you, but they will jeer you. You won't be their hero, but you'll be their zero. Because when you speak about sin and salvation and judgment and forgiveness, not everybody reacts with joy and say, oh, I want to become a Christian. They might irrationally and unfairly and unjustly attack you instead. Now we then come to the next city on the second missionary journey, which is the next slide. Right, so uh, if you look at the, you're going to click once. So they move from Philippi to Thessalonica and Berea. Can you see the top left there? The two these two close cities close together. Now, this section is famous for the Berean Jews, right? You know, the Berean Jews who are the noble Jews. So the Berean Jews are very famous because in verse 10, uh, they were these Jews who were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica because they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Now, if you look at your NIV, I think it's a bit, uh, the translation is not quite right. It actually misses out what I feel is a very important word in the original, which is the word uh, thus or therefore. So if you look at the NIV translation, you compare your NIV translation with your NIV so the ESV translation of the NIV translation, you see that the NIV doesn't have this word therefore. And I think this word therefore is quite important because there's actually a link between people who are open to examining scripture, opening to receiving the word, opening to being reasoned and persuaded with, and coming to faith. And that is why the Bereans were noble, because when they were open to looking at scripture together, examining it, reasoning with it, therefore they came to faith. In fact, in uh, chapter 17, verse 1 to 4, I feel like the Thessalonians also get a bit of a bad name, right? You know, They were not so noble, but they still became Christians, right? Some of them. Because in verse 1 to 4, the same thing happens with the Thessalonian Christians, or the, these Jews who became Christians. In verse 2, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent, prominent women. Now, if you look at these two passages, this is the process of evangelism. The evangelist looks at scripture, he reasons, he persuades, he proves. The listener 
the hearer is willing to receive the word and to examine the scriptures and therefore the listener or the hearer becomes saved. Now, as we've been going through the book of Acts, uh, someone once said that once you preach the word, the gospel, two things happen. Revival and riot. And that's exactly what happens again here. So, as the gospel is preached in Thessalonica and Berea, there is revival. These people hear the word, they become Christians. But there's also riot because there are also these Jews who are jealous. So in verse 5 it says, But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters in the marketplace and formed a mob and started a riot. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. And then when later on when they heard that they were in Berea, in verse 12, it said there, um, but the Jews, sorry, 13, but when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So as you preach the gospel, there is a revival in some people and there's a riot in others. There will be noble people who are reasonable, who want to examine the scriptures and talk to you about it, but there will be people who are unreasonable and jealous and who want to attack you for it. Now, again, this is a very important lesson for us because whenever we go out and talk and share the, the gospel of Jesus with people, what do we want? We want everybody to be like the noble Bereans. We want people to sit down with us and to be reasonable, to listen to what God has to say, to be persuaded to prove the death and resurrection of Jesus. But that is not the reality. Because the reality is, not everybody will be like the noble Bereans. There will be people who will be unreasonable. They don't want to listen to Scripture. They don't want to give you the time of day and they will respond emotionally and aggressively against you. I remember a pastor who I really admire. He's, uh, he's died. His name is Dudley Ford. He died in 2013. He was known for his hospitality and he'd always tell stories about how he always invited people to his house from his neighborhood to try to share the gospel of Jesus with them. And I remember once in a sermon he shared about a couple who had just moved into his neighborhood and as it was his normal process, he invited them to his house and he started talking just off the cuff about Jesus Christ. And he said immediately, right off, straight off the bat, straight away, they became very emotional and very aggressive against him. And he said to them, if you ever see Dali Ford, he's a very funny, he's a very tall Australian man, he says, hey, 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 calm down, right? What's the problem here? We're just talking over dinner, right? But he said, that's the way some people are. Some people will just react very emotionally against the gospel of Jesus. They will not be like the Bereans, noble, but they will be unreasonable. They will be aggressive and they will be very antagonistic about the gospel. But that's just the reality of the world that we live in. And it's unrealistic to expect that everybody will be like the Bereans. But we have to still keep sharing. Now the last city we come to, next slide, is the city of Athens. Athens, um, in Paul's day, was one of the great cities of, of the day. 
it was known as the intellectual and philosophical center of Europe in many ways. It was also very spiritual. They were very superstitious. They believed in many, many gods. And lastly, they were basically biblically illiterate. They didn't have any biblical influence in Athens. They didn't know about the Ten Commandments, didn't know about Moses, didn't know about the Old Testament. They had nothing. So here we see, as we look at um, Athens, we actually see that we're moving further and further away from places which have Jewish culture and Jewish influence and more and more into the wider world where there is no understanding of uh, the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments or even of the, the Old Testament anyway. So when Paul goes into this setting, what, what is the message that he preaches? Because obviously he can't reason from the scriptures anymore because they don't understand the scriptures, they don't have the scriptures. So in verse 23 to 31, we read of his address to the Aragopolis, which is like a, it's like this big meeting area, right? Imagine like uh, those days they have no internet, no computer games, no TV. So what they did was they just come together and have big debates, okay? So in verse 22, Paul stood out in the meeting of the Aragopolis and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole world, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophet, poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So how does Paul preach to a world which has no knowledge of the Old Testament God. Well, he says two main things about God. The first thing is that God is a creator God. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Secondly, not only is he a creator God, but he's a sustainer God. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. So because God is a sustainer God and a creator God, the way that they were worshipping God was wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Because God is so big, 
You cannot worship him as an idol made of gold and silver. He cannot be contained in an idol. He cannot be kept in a temple because God has made the whole world. He cannot just be captured in a temple. And you cannot worship God by making sacrifices and feeding him because he doesn't need food. He feeds us. He sustains us. So he's saying, look, the way you worship God is the wrong response. The right response to God is to repent, to repent of their sins because judgment is coming because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul preached this message, the audience, many of them sneered at Jesus. You know, it's a bit like, you know, uh, I was watching a, Taiwan, um, oh no, actually I wasn't Taiwan Parliament, right? I was watching the, when I was traveling in England, I was watching, uh, you know, the British are really amazing. <clears throat> they have so many shows on politics on TV. So they actually have this thing where they actually show, shows what happens in Parliament. I suppose it's because it's very exciting, right? And it was amazing because, you know, when people are speaking, there are people in the crowd going, Ooh, rubbish! And I was thinking, wow, if I have to, if I have to face this all the time, right? can you imagine you're the Prime Minister and you're talking and there are people murmuring and hissing and sneering at you all the time, right? And I'm like, well, this is amazing. But that was exactly what was happening to Paul. When he was preaching, they were sneering at him because they didn't like his idea of sin, repentance, judgment, and the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, some commentators have said that Paul here gives us an example of how not to preach to pagans. Because if you look at verse 32 to 34, so few people actually responded to his preaching. In verse 32, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some people became followers and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Arapagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So there were so few. But I think that this is the wrong lesson. Paul didn't preach the wrong sermon. He preached the right sermon. It's just that God chose very few people. See, in many ways, the Athens of Paul's day is the world that we live in today. We live in a post-Bible world where many people don't know Anything about the Bible. Some, I was reading somebody, I can't remember, I was talking to somebody and they didn't even know who David and Goliath was. And I was really surprised. Anyway, and yet we live in a world where people think that they're very spiritual people. And people see themselves as very intellectual and very philosophical. But yet, Paul didn't deviate from preaching repentance, sin, judgment, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when you compare Paul's preaching in a world which is very similar to ours and the evangelistic preaching that we get today, it's very sad and pathetic because we don't preach the same things that Paul preaches. I rarely go to evangelistic sermons where you ever hear about judgment or sin or the resurrection of Jesus. Because in the world that we live in, in the post-modern, philosophical, spiritual world that we live in, these things are offensive. But instead, 
when you go to evangelistic sermons in some churches, which I've heard, you just hear about how God wants to bless you. God wants to, to, to fill what is lacking in your life and to make it blessed. Paul wasn't like that because Paul was called to be a witness. Now, when you look at um, the book of Acts, as we've been going through, you can see that the, 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 this phrase, the theme of witness, is a very important phrase. So, in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Chapter 1, verse 22 to 20, uh, 21 to 22, it says, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. In chapter 2, verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Acts 13, when they carried him out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days we have seen, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So the role of the evangelist, the role of Paul, is not to persuade people by, by engaging with people on the level that they want to engage in, but to be witnesses of the reality of Jesus his resurrection and its implications on sin, repentance, and judgment. Now, I want you to think for a moment about Paul. The pressure that Paul was under to change the message and not be a witness. When Paul first came to Athens, look at what they said about him. The next slide. They said, who is this babbler? Now, this word babbler literally means who is this um, trash picker you know or someone who's just talking nonsense he was already preaching about jesus and the resurrection and people were saying you know you're just a trash picker you're just a babbler then they take you and bring you to the main lecture hall of the department of philosophy at nus and now they say preach to us what you were saying before and you already know that they were saying you were just a trash picker, you're just a babbler. And I don't know about you, maybe you've got really thick skin, but if I was Paul, I would be very tempted to change the message to make it more appealing for people so that, so that they would like me, you know, because I like to be liked. I'm sure everybody likes to be liked. And Paul knew that the resurrection was just not a very attractive proposition for these very cultured Athenians because they don't believe in resurrection, they don't focus on the body, they focus on the spirit. For them, the idea of sin was not existent. But still, Paul preached about repentance, judgment, resurrection, even though he knew it would lead to sneering and mocking. So in the introduction, I said, do you believe that the gospel of Jesus is powerful? Or do you believe that it is weak? Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus is relevant? Actually, it doesn't matter what we think, right? It doesn't matter whether we think it's powerful or weak or relevant. It doesn't matter at all. 
Because we are just called to preach what God has already told us to preach, which is to witness to Jesus, His death, His resurrection, and the implications of it. So just the other day, I was driving in my car and I was listening to a sermon on the radio. Uh, and uh, Not the radio. There's no sermon on the radio. Sermon on my, uh, my phone, right, which I downloaded. And this pastor was saying, you know, and this is, he's obviously an old pastor, right, because I don't live in these times. So he said, you know, during the 60s and 70s, uh, it was the age where the spirit of science was upon us. And so in the 60s and 70s, people were very, very uh, negative about supernatural things, right? They don't believe in supernatural things. So many of the pastors in that day were saying, oh, you know, we shouldn't preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a supernatural thing and it will turn people off the gospel. So let's not focus so much on the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, this is in England, by the way, this man was preaching. Then he said, you know, after that age was the age of pluralism and postmodern thinking. So it was the age where it's wrong to judge anybody because everybody's different. We should just accept everybody with their differences. And he said, you know, that was one of the criticisms that was made of the Alpha Course. Because, you know, if you look at the Alpha Course, they define sin in this way. Sin in the Alpha Course is defined as the mess we make in our own lives. Sin is defined as rubbish that clutters up our lives and the world. Sin is defined as pollution of the soul. Now, for those of us who have done the Bible overview, that is not sin. And because you define sin in this way, the Alpha Course says very little about judgment or future judgment from Jesus. And then he went on to say that today we live in an age where the spirit of the age is one where you, are, you should not criticize anybody or any you know, thing about uh, their sexuality and the freedom to choose your own identity in terms of sexuality. So pastors today also feel that we shouldn't be talking about thing, these things in our gospel. So over time, you take out the resurrection of Jesus, you take out sin, you take out the judgment, you take out sexual identity, you have no gospel of Jesus after a while. And that's why it's quite interesting because the principal of my theological college in Sydney, who is now the Archbishop, once mentioned that there's such a thing called the idolatry of evangelism. The idolatry of evangelism where you worship evangelism like a god because the most important thing is to bring people to church and to fill the church and to make them feel as if they are loved by God. But the problem with the idolatry of evangelism is that it makes us dilute and compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as we've seen here, our job is not to convert people. That's God's job. God opens up people's hearts to become Christians. Our job is to preach the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, uncorrupted, to all people, the rich people, the wealthy people, the super mega wealthy people, to the reasonable people, to the unreasonable people, to the philosophical people, to the spiritual people. We preach to all people the same message. Creator God, sustainer God, repentance, sin, judgment, forgiveness, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I hope that as we look at today's passage, we really learn the important lesson that 
The gospel is for all people, but not all people will accept it. We should resist the temptation to try to change that gospel so that people will like it, but we'll just keep preaching because we are confident that God will open the hearts of the people that He wants to open. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to learn from your word which speaks so powerfully the reality of this world. Help us not to have a false picture of this world where we think that the gospel will be loved and that we try to change the gospel so that it is loved by this world, but rather that we preach and share and evangelize with the gospel that is real, that is authentic, that speaks of Jesus Christ as raised, which speaks of sin and repentance, that speaks of you as the only creator and sustainer God, and that we will preach it regardless of whether it is received by reasonable or unreasonable men and women, and that we will trust you to open their hearts and not trust our own ingenuity or our own uh, way of diluting the gospel. And we just pray that we'll keep sharing the gospel with rich people, poor people, sophisticated people, postmodern people, a world which is technologically savvy, a world which is interconnected, but we will still share the authentic gospel with them and that you in your sovereignty will change people's hearts and bring them to faith. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.